0: Welcome to the Becoming Human podcast. And the goal of the show, pretty self explanatory, is for us to explore topics dealing with being alive, being human within this world. And one of those that has come up again and again, um, but we haven't ever delved into, is the concept of community. Um, and so today, you know, this is, this is a topic like a lot of the topics we explore with being human. That is for everybody. Everybody in some way, shape or form, interacts with community to some degree. And it's also one of the most common words that you hear in our culture. And so I think it's helpful to just think about like what is community and how should we engage with community? So that's what we are going to explore today. And to help me do this, uh, I have two guests um, who are going to kind of bring their own unique angles to this conversation. Um, and so first is uh, Dr. Ashley Pryor Geiger, who is from the University of Toledo. Who she's a professor there, um, and she's way smarter than me. <laughs> um, and so uh, Ashley is here with us. And uh, you. So your background is in philosophy, but it's. More varied than that, you've kind of been all over the place. So, mm-hmm. like, what what are you bringing into this conversation? What what do, where, what's your background? What's where you come from?
1: Yeah. So, um, so thanks for having me here to talk about mm-hmm. community. Yeah. So i um, I have a pretty eclectic um, academic background. I um, started off having a really a hard time picking a major when I was an undergraduate. So I um, ended up with a triple major in art history, philosophy, and foreign languages, um, French, German, and ancient Greek.
0: Not not to spoil this, but the fact that you found a way to combine all of those into a cohesive profession, well done.
1: Yeah, no, I, I didn't I feel very fortunate that I somehow stumbled into something that I found so satisfying. Um, I I went on to do, to pick one of those as my point of focus, which is philosophy, Um, and I worked in an area called continental philosophy, which is just a way of talking about um, a pursuit of philosophy that's rooted in wondering about the history of ideas. Um, and particularly um, the genealogy of ideas, which is just a way of saying like, how, let's say, did the ancient Greeks think about um, community, since that's one of sure. our words. Right, right. And then as their texts get translated into Latin, how did that change? And then from there, maybe French and German, until we are in, you know, dealing with some of these words, community, community. contemporary U.S. society. So I was really interested in that. And then I did a doctorate in that same area. Um, But I was really fortunate because um, I had the opportunity moving from a philosophy department, which I love philosophy, so I was happy enough. But now I work in a truly interdisciplinary space. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm a professor of the humanities in the Jessup Scott Honors College. And there I've been able to really um, develop very wildly interdisciplinary courses, one of which is a course on community engagement, which is what brings me here today to right. talk about, um, thinking about what is that key term, community, that gives rise to a course where we engage with <laughs> and,
0: and you bring into that the philosophy, mm-hmm. the humanities background in general, which deals with some of your expertise. But the the way that I've heard you talk about the Honors College is you're also trying to prepare a variety of students in a variety of fields, kind of move them away just from their professional development and their specialization yeah, and give them tools for how they're actually going to practice whatever field they're going into, right?
1: Yeah. The, um, one of the – I mean, that th- there are always – pros and cons to changes institutionally. What I've definitely seen from the time I did this wild and wacky you know, triple major mm-hmm. <laughs> where I was just immersed in a liberal arts education is the opportunities to do that are um, fewer and, and far between because there is, and, and one can understand it with massive student debt crisis, et, et cetera, the the high cost of higher education that parents and students are interested in more streamlined um, point A to point B, be getting a well paying job to help pay off some of those loans. (laughs) Go to the institution and get the degree, get a job. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so not surprisingly, students have very highly structured pathways in pre-professional programs where they're, really do have fewer opportunities not only to study like these open-ended questions of philosophy but but also maybe some of this what we talk about soft skills of teamwork um, of negotiation of conflict resolution you know some of them do have those opportunities like so for instance in the school of business chances right. are they're going to get something about conflict resolution but we really try to create these interdisciplinary courses where students have the opportunity to really think about, obviously, ethical dimensions of practice. Mm-hmm. Um, the big, wide, juicy questions like, what is community anyway? Um, and then also just, again, like how to work effectively across differences, whether those are, you know, cultural, socioeconomic differences, but also conceptual Differences or even have the opportunity to think conceptually, which sometimes is a missing element
0: in these programs. And and you're going to need to be able to do that with whatever work you're going to do. Absolutely. And when it comes to the topic of community, well, whatever work you're going to do is going to deal with your own relationships, but also specific communities where that work's going to unfold. You know, there's the importance of place. Yeah. All of these students are going to have a place teaching them how to interact with that place you know Mm -hmm. i like that um so ashley is going to be bringing a lot of that uh both theoretical and practical background to to this question of community and then i'm also here with amy brody um and if you listen to uh the other podcast that i co-host amy you've heard her voice she's she's the other co-host of the bible archives um so anybody who's like uh hey bible and theology that's interesting to me from a scholarly yet practical background, um, that's Amy. Amy and I do that, uh, that podcast together. And uh, Amy and I also work together. So we both work at the farmhouse, which is in the rural community of Metamora. And so Amy's life, like her professional work, deals with interacting with communities, developing communities, but also engaging, like that's a, that's a constant process of that.
2: Yeah, so I'm a person who is embedded in the community. I live here. My husband and I are musicians, and so we often engage with community. And so for me to be in this conversation, it's like I'm getting to pick up something that I do uh, you know, intuitively and, and embedded in doing and able to pick it up and look at it and go, oh, this, this has something different that I need to see and to look at.
0: Yeah, and there's something about like you are in lots of different places, spaces, lots of different people. Um, very eclectic, you could mm-hmm. say, in the amount of people that you uh, interact with on a daily basis, but you're also analyzing these things all the time and trying to figure out how do we do this better? How do we handle this situation? Um, and so between uh, Amy and Ashley, we're gonna have a lot of different perspectives that we're able to bring into this. So I think the best place to start is gonna end up being at the beginning. And uh, community is one of those things that almost unfortunately, I like that we have been able to move past scholasticism in a lot of ways <laughs> and, and just the academics all the time um, and move into the practical with a lot of ideas. Really good, love that. Community is one where it's almost happened too much, where we use this word all the time, our our culture does, I should say, and we don't realize like, hey, it's actually a technical thing. It's, it's something we can look at and, and analyze to some degree try to understand deeply. And it's not a new conversation either. And, uh, like, if you just think about some of the ways people, the, one of the ways I hear it all the time is like, you know, I really just looking for community right now. Mm. Like, okay, so what are you looking for? What community? Yeah. So what, what is that? Yeah. Just community, you know? Okay. (laughs) So that's not helpful. Um, what do we Mm. mean by that? or I think in some ways people just mean community as a group of friends. yeah, Just want a group of friends, Uh, okay? Um, Or they say, you know, my community, and they mean a group of people that they share particular affinities with. Uh, I think there's a lot of these ways that we mean or imply when we talk about this. Um, But I also, you hear it too of like, we'll, we'll say, where we live the evergreen community mm. which isn't technically an address locator mm. it's a way we describe this common place that we have mm. um so we probably should step back and go what actually is this
1: so i love that introduction it reminds me of aristotle so you know this is ashley and i always think through philosophy, for better or worse. And so Aristotle is one of those Greek philosophers that I fell in love with, you know, way back when, begins almost every text of his, no matter what the subject matter is, with, um, we're going to use the term community to, to, to demonstrate this. Well, community can be said in many ways. And then he goes through a variety of definitions and circumstances. And in many ways, you just did the classic Uh. Aristotelian gesture, Tyler.
0: Yeah, I knew exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Love Aristotle so much that I didn't know that.
1: (laughs) So, But there's also the tension between what Aristotle does there, which is to say, here are these multiple uh, instances of community. Um, to then wondering, well, is there this common thread that unites them all? Yeah. And uh, and I'm with you that I I sometimes am annoyed by the I will characterize it as sort of the hippie response of like community. <laughs> like,
3: you mean you know like, anything
1: about
0: that? <laughs> <laughs> well, but I I do think it's worth saying, like Amy, you've those those kind of things you've probably heard in all these circles that you're a part of.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's that sense of, um, you know, we're going to start some kind of a, a group and everybody's going to get along and we're all going to go back to the land and grow things <laughs> or, or, you know, we're going to start some kind of pagan community and we're going to, you know, worship the moon and do these different things. Or even within the, you know, the music community, it's that same kind of thought of everybody's supposed to sit around and get high and, and play their banjos, right. you know, so yeah, it's a very, a very common idea.
0: And I think that captures one of the, when people say community, they mostly mean this connection, Mm -hmm. this human connection that people seem to naturally want. And
2: Well, can I ask a philosophical question about community? Now, my understanding is that um, Aristotle was one of the ones that he felt that in order to understand philosophy, in order to understand yourself, you had to have the debate among other people. You know, like sometimes we get this idea of philosophers as being people who go off into some place and they think, you know, contemplative like the Thoreau's or Emerson Mm -hmm. or these transcendentalist ideas where they go off and learn these things. But my understanding, if I'm am I correct, that that was their idea of community was that, no, this is where we learn to be humans. This is where we learn civil discourse, political discourse, even theological discourse had to take place within a group of people. So that they could, you know, develop those ideas.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's a it's a wonderful question. I'll I'll respond in two ways. Like the first thing I, I was thinking about is when we talked about so you have these many different uh, instantiations of of community uh, thought through uh, Tyler Chan- channeling Aristotle. One of which is this. We could call this romantic. Like what we were talking about is there. It's it's not that the hippie response is wrong. It there. It's infused with this idea of a feeling or an emotion of unity, which is is in, an important element in community. But then you have Amy. Back to you and your question. The um, one of my other heroes is is Socrates, who wow <laughs> Tyler's, th- Tyler's sighing
0: because <laughs> i I was you know I appreciate the Aristotle compliment I was going for a Socratic <laughs> one like we're gonna ask what this thing is you know he would walk and we brought this up on the show before of like so what is justice mm-hmm. what is love and and people eventually going like and you don't actually know, so we should probably learn about. It. That's kind of what I see us doing with community as well.
1: Yeah, and so you know, going back to the hippie example, so that that's a moment for Socratic inquiry because there is something valuable the hippie knows who's in the romantic mode. the The problem is that perhaps hippie has not reflected above and beyond just like my feeling right now about community and not unpacking, you know, what might be shared moments or elements or expanding beyond um, a mere feeling. And I say mere, just that a feeling alone is, we know human emotions are changeable, that's just part of the phenomenology of emotions, Um, that's why the the Greek word for emotions is pathe that's where we get pathological so Mm -hmm. if you have too (laughs) too much pathe without a moment of reflection spurred by a question like well what is this thing so it's very valuable to have a figure like uh, Socrates and all Socrates is is the moment of questioning as well could you tell me more about this feeling that you have.
2: So you can move from kind of an idealization of something into a practical, how are we actually gonna do
0: this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's where Socrates is constantly going, well, we should understand this thing so that we can know what it is and and how we can use it. And there's always, I wanna make sure we're not embodying platonism too much of that there is this correct ideal form of community that if we can just chip away enough we'll get to you know if you listen to the show you know i tend to uh take on the the process philosophy approach mm-hmm. of now we're moving towards something but we don't necessarily know what we're moving toward and or we're kind of uncovering and creating as we go um but regardless it's worth going all right so community we hear it all the time but what actually is this thing in I would no better place to start than with the continental philosopher. So, Ashley, how has community been understood over time from a philosophical perspective?
1: Yeah, so I think just um, taking that root of common that we still have in the community. So what is this sort of unifying, is there a unifying something that underlies all of these different manifestations that we could list off Um, and one, you know, one direction, this is just sort of a, an aside is it's really interesting to see that one of the first references to a census, like, like the word sense we are going to get from census, communis, is in Aristotle, um, And there, though, it's actually Aristotle reflecting on our five senses and saying, well, there really should be a sixth sense. That is something that unifies all of these different kinds of perceptions that we have of the things in the world. And this is what he calls the sensus communis, the sixth sense. This then gets carried on into later philosophers, and it moves from this kind of organizing rational, quasi-rational principle to really reflecting, like through Stoic philosophers on community, there must be something like uh, an organizing principle or an underlying idea mm-hmm. of community that holds us together. And to me, this yeah, is that's gr- interesting. Yeah.
0: Uh, the, partly because, like, metaphysically, those uh, schools of philosophy would talk about this there's some organize, there's a logos, right? There's an right. organizing principle, but it, that also exists within humanity. The, is this also part of them going, uh, we have these phenomenological limits as human beings, a bunch of different perceptions here, we're also in the same shared space, uh, so we need to somehow have this organizing thing beyond just us as individuals that is necessary to being alive. Is it? Is it that?
1: Yeah. I think thought through, of course, these different philosophers at different times, you could say, I think that that's the basic intuition or wondering about. It's a live question through Western philosophy, particularly about is there is there something identifiable that you know extends us beyond just the individual to create this um, shared sense. Um, and you know, then the answers have have differed radically. So you can think about like later someone like <clears throat> Thomas Hobbes, who's very committed to the idea that no, really, actually, that which holds us together is an artificial constraint that we required a contract mm-hmm. to keep us all from killing each other, right? And to protect our private property. Yeah,
0: and he's <laughs> kind of going: human nature is individual, so we have to create these ideas, these mm-hmm. constructs, government being the most obvious one. Right. That holds it all together yeah okay
1: And then you might have in much later in the tradition like of you know f- feminist philosophers who are like I'm thinking about care ethicists who really understand uh, kind of an emotive connection between people that like our ability to be empathetic or someone like Rousseau like we don't even have to go to the early feminists but like Rousseau is a really interesting philosopher of community. Who really um, is worried about being overly rational in our approach to community? To talk about, no, there's something in our natures that's a motive, that's an important corrective to really, um, you were talking about Plato, like a Platonic idea that ends up excluding a lot of people, um, potentially. R- Rousseau said that? So, yeah, Rousseau, you know, Rousseau. Really? Um, in his. Uh, Uh, Works like on the edge, Emil, which is sort of his uh, Bildungsroman or uh, rite of passage book about talking about education. Is really all about this like sort of emotional, um, this really important emotional component. So he was. I didn't didn't know that. Yeah, he was a really interesting sort of anti Enlightenment thinker who was in encapsulated in, in Enlightenment thinking, partly because of his own work on the social contract. So he is in opposition to someone like Hobbes.
0: Now, I want to take this in a different direction because, yeah. I mean, we just jumped from <laughs> Aristotle <deal>. to Enlightenment <laughs> with a few stops in between. Um, but this also brings up for me, I hadn't necessarily connected this before, of the Eastern philosophies, which we might not always call them philosophies, but the worldviews, the, the, the sociologies of those cultures, you know, I'm thinking of Confucianism and mm-hmm. uh, things like that, which are contemporary to the Socrates and the Plato's and the Aristotle. Uh, they're almost not even assuming that there is, a, there is an individual approach that we have to think more from. They're assuming the collective all the time, and that's partly practical, survival-based. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, they're more going like, so how do we order the collective? Mm-hmm. Um and so you can go back to this same time period and realize that people were already thinking this way. Is there anything from that perspective that's also speaking to this trying to define what the collective is?
1: Yeah, well that's that's a wonderful addition and a, and a central addition to the conversation. So the you know, I would say that this is going to be a sweeping generalization, but when you think about Eastern orientations around community, you have to also begin, probably in both traditions, by thinking about the core idea of individuality or the the, the, the agent, the human agent. And for an Eastern orientation, the I is already phenomenologically related to the environment in such a way that it's sort just of... Hold,
0: just hold oh, sorry. on. <laughs> Let me process what you just said. The I is already what did
1: phenomenologically or l- l- let me put it this way in an eastern orientation i think the core difference from a western idea of like a human agent who acts
0: the individual
1: at the individual yeah. we don't begin with the individual in eastern orientations right. we begin with a much more um embedded idea of self who is only that self in relation to the environment.
0: So the I is already phenomenologically assumed to be in relation to the other.
1: So this already demonstrates again, kind of returning us to the beginning of the conversation and the idea, like when we try to define community, it is important to sort of do an inventory of the meaning of That word in different contexts, Mm -hmm. and it's also important. I think uh, I'm so glad you brought up the Eastern orientations too to community. That um, we we always have to be mindful in our attempts. I think of looking for that one definition that might embrace all. Yeah. To to not some one way of talking about it is kind of perform um, a, a Western imperialism yeah. um
0: can we dissect this thing down and up oh, there we found the right. answer and it's not it's not the, gonna happen
1: the universal that's why i really appreciate when you were talking about um a sort of process orientation uh i think both can work together so on the one hand it's it's very useful like a socrates to say to someone, well, what, how are you using that term? Let's try to define that together. And then usually the process is a spilling out. Well, two things happen in conversation with someone like Socrates. One is that there's a spilling out of multiple understandings of a definition of community. Um, which helps clarify at least some of the terms and to think about the terrain. There's also what happened with Socrates, more often than not, is he would meet an ideologue who would use a term not knowing what was meant at all and often being unwilling to explore further that the definition is perhaps not a shared one is assumed, um, could possibly have dangerous consequences if pursued. So both possibilities are, um, I think, are, are really valuable. The proliferation of definitions or the exposure of someone who potentially has a very dangerous uh idea if they are going to impose it upon everyone and likewise in this conversation as a kind of wrap-up I think in 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 ways we've performed already that community can be said in many ways Um, there is value to the attempt at definition even if we don't come to that platonic ideal of community which may not in fact exist may but maybe is this guiding that it's hopeful it's, it's hopeful to have an idea that there might be something unifying yeah. to create conditions where we can all explore together, but that there might be something really of value that we can never get there.
0: I, I have a uh, Wittgenstein sign in my head right now of the language game and it's, why are you trying to define something that that doesn't that definition doesn't actually exist mm-hmm. uh, just whatever you all decide it is. So if we were to try to decide something that it is, if we're to condense, you know, thousands of years of uh, academic history down into one line, it kind of sounds like if we're if we're really going to play to Aristotle, that community is the common life. You know what he's talking about. If, you know, you mentioned um, the uh, what is it called, census communis. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and that being, you know, common sense, as in the. Our shared sense together, the sixth sense. So, what do we hold in common that that life together? Um, and I think I think this is interesting on one level, where we've talked about this before um, on on the show of the human the human trajectory and these teleological goals that different schools of thought have. All always comes down to something like universal flourishing whether it's a religion or a philosophical mm-hmm. school or humanism, there's that, that, that concept. And it's the idea that multiple individuals are in question here, and they all have to work together towards something. And that's kind of, uh, you know, those goals, when we talk about universal flourishing or health or whatever assumes community. Um, and, and Stoicism had a word for this, of, of cosmopolitan. That we are a citizen of the of the cosmos of the mm-hmm. of the universe, and we need to then act in the best interest of the the whole uh, all of the citizens together. Um, or they use the word oikiosis. You know, this mm-hmm. is a household. We have to treat each each circle of the household uh, in the same way we would treat our own family, and that gets down to community. But then that that starts leading to well how do we determine where that begins and ends hmm. you know it's one thing to have the idea of you know i'm a citizen of the universe and you're universal flourishing and you know let's make this happen and and i think the best that gets to is you know people holding signs about like save the planet and uh yeah but what are we going to do about that and so within our 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 constraints as human beings i think community is the way where that big large abstract goal Finds its merit, Mm -hmm. right, in in the places that we are. So that makes this conversation important too. Um, And and ultimately, once you start talking about community, you got to move into, so how do we do it? How do we practice it? Um, You know that theory and practice that that we've kind of been mentioning from these different philosophers so far. And and this is where I think sociology maybe uh, puts some 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 tread work Mm -hmm. on philosophy. Mm Because it comes along and says, "Well, but let's actually l- look at this and study it and observe it, and then make decisions about what to do with it." Um, and sociology comes up with a lot of principles when it comes to the ideas of community or society. I mean, sociology and society together. Um, so I think I think that that component is really interesting in here as well. Uh, Durkheim would probably be where I would start within that conversation. I mean. Compared to philosophy, sociology is brand new, like still an mm-hmm. infant. You know, it hasn't been around for very long. Um, and and Durkheim talks about this quite a bit in trying to analyze society. Uh, so he brings up the collective consciousness, and that you can't really separate an individual from the world around them, um, and whether that's by nature or by circumstance, you know. We're born around people, so we might want to figure out how to do it. Um, but, but his his big goal was trying to figure out how communities work. So he's not even caring caring too much about the definition. He's mm-hmm. just recognizing this thing exists. And like you were saying, Ashley, it can be really destructive, and used really poorly, or it can actually help folks. So he talks about the collective, uh, the collective consciousness, um, or the collective unconscious. They'll even call it. Um, that just describes this kind of web that we're all in, that affects one another. He's also presuming um, that we're all individuals within that. Mm-hmm. So definitely a Western perspective too. Um, or you've got uh, from the communication department, huh? a little, little following up my bachelor's degree here, uh, the, the George Herbert Mead who kind of founded social psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's taking psychological principles and applying them to social groups as a whole, um, where he brings up a concept called the looking glass self, Mm. where he says that no person can understand themselves apart from other persons. So you become a reflection uh, of the society that you're around, um, and you then reflect back society to itself. Mm Um, and one of the things he's known for saying is like, no human can live on an island mm-hmm. and, and, and hypothetical, I mean, you could, mm-hmm. you could go live on an island, I'm sure. He's talking about the metaphor of that, of you can't isolate yourself from anyone else. You can't just be you. You can only be you in relationship to everybody who's around you. Um, so it takes this idea, we're constantly affecting one another, but also says uh, it's impossible to avoid. So community becomes really important for that. Um, and then the other one, so here I am, <laughs> just name dropping like I know what I'm talking <laughs> about. Yuri Brovenbrenner would be another uh, kind of on the psych- psychology but sociology level. He has uh, something called the, the bio- bioecological method um, or theory that's sometimes called the babushka theory. Oh because he explains the human person in these levels that all involve one another. And he goes all all the way from the microcosmic, which is just the person, into uh, like the next immediate relationships. And he just unpacks that. There's these levels of connection that affect you until you eventually get to uh, like a Durkheim kind of thing of the collective whole of the world. Mm and all of these things are affecting one another.
1: So like nesting dolls.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. Come on, Isn't that was not like the Eastern European version of Babushka. Babushka. Yeah,
3: right. I think so.
0: Okay. So uh the but what's interesting about all of those sociological perspectives is they're going you can't escape other people. And the interaction with other people is going to drastically affect your own experience of the world. Um so within this and again, I'm I'm not trying to say this is the only way to understand community, not trying to give us that one mm-hmm. platonic definition, um, but within sociology and communication, which again is just more of my background, so that's kind of what I've allowed to, to shape my perspective is they talk about four ingredients that are kind of necessary for there to be community. Um, and this is important because now it starts giving you those practical markers mm-hmm. that when somebody said, you know, I'm looking for a community man, you go, okay, <laughs> well, so here's the things that that involves. Um, but it also starts kind of shaping how it needs to work and how it can't work. Um, so the four ingredients are proximity or shared space, shared history, permanence, or shared commitment, you can call that one. And then shared vision. So proximity, physical presence. Shared history, something that transcends just the current present moment. And and the deeper that goes back, the the better it is. That's the perspective, at least. Um, Permanence, where there is a commitment for that presence to continue. So shared history takes care of the past leading up to the present. Shared, uh, shared commitment or permanence implies that the future will also continue from the present. And then shared vision. Um, and these are values, expectations, rules, the guidelines for how mm-hmm. the function's gonna happen. What I find interesting about this is that when people talk about community, they usually mean the fourth one. Mm-hmm. I have a shared vision with a group of people. And when people talk about like virtual communion I was just gonna
1: ask about proximity and the internet yeah. like we talk about internet communities more yeah. often than we're talking about physical Call me instanti- a Luddite. Uh-huh.
0: But I always almost because I'm kind of contrarian, I always take a hard stance of virtual community does not exist. Uh uh-huh. I because of this definition, which uh-huh. yes, you can yeah. definitely argue it. But um one of the lines I'll use sometime is like you're having community through a screen, but in the end, it's a screen. Huh? And there's something that happens with technology where um, there's an anonymity to it, right? We're, we're gonna wrap a trail here, you ready? Yeah. So it's the same thing that okay. happens when you're driving in a car.
3: Right.
0: Uh, road rage is a thing from very well-meaning, normally docile people. <laughs> Because of the anonymity of the car. There's a separation of persons there. So uh-huh. somebody who might uh, throw the middle finger, slam on the horn, tailgate somebody in a vehicle, if those two same people were having some sort of conflict in person,
3: yeah. like
0: they're standing next to each other, that person doesn't ever do that. Yeah. Well, The same thing happens on the internet. Very nice, docile, well-meaning people leave YouTube comments that are Unbelievably wow. hideous, or Twitter,
1: yeah. But I also think about um, meaningful communities that maybe wouldn't be possible in real bit. time and space. Like thinking about people living with particular forms of disability, yeah. and they have true. I th- I wouldn't want to say no. That's because those interactions are only happening through the internet. Right. That that that's no less a sense of community. But it does, so it is interesting what this word pro proximity then could mean. Um,
0: and and that deals with questions about consciousness mm-hmm. and uh, questions about like uh, the philosophy of mind mm-hmm. um, and then psychologically what is what is happening there. So can you have proximity without physical presence? That's right. the real question right. there. My my take is no, you can't. Okay. So what I, what I would probably say to some of those examples you gave are those people are experiencing a part of community that is that shared vision mm-hmm. and that's still really meaningful, mm-hmm. but I would, I would actually push to go, but it's not community. Mm. <laughs> and, and, and I'm going to, I'll be honest here. I am on the outside of this. Yeah. And, and one of the realms that I uh, am in, in the church world uh-huh. right now, the huge thing is uh digital church. Right. And i I go ahead and throw my hand and say, not possible. You can experience parts of it, Uh but the presence matters, okay? It'd be the same, uh, one of the ways I push back here is to go, so if you read a book by somebody who, from the 17th century, and you experience that meaning, that connection via the words, is that still community? Can you have community Mm -hmm. with these people who don't exist anymore? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that, The argument still persists where that breaks down, but most of it we would say, well, no, we're just inspired by. So what I do is I go, so how, why is a computer screen or a phone screen uh, different? What makes it a different kind of medium than a book? Because in the end, we're still just reading the words of the person, Mm -hmm. or we're still seeing their, their voice or seeing their face or hearing their voice mediated through some sort of technological medium. Right. So do we have to actually pare this down to where it's actually the person in the present moment. Again, depending on how you talk about consciousness, how you talk about the psychology of, of the mind and relationships will determine how you do this. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm being contrarian now because everybody goes virtual community and I go, wait a second.
3: Yeah.
0: So those other three though, shared history, permanence, and shared vision, you can have digitally. You can have online, absolutely.
1: So it's really the the place dimension, so we just transpose this. So we, we talked about, okay, so you can have the temporal, historical, even, dimension yeah. in place. Um, and you can have the other two ingredients. But your question is whether we can meaningfully talk about cyber. Well, it's interesting we say space as opposed to cyber place, right? And, and again, yeah. I'm just going to reference very quickly, like Aristotle makes a also a real difference between topos, place, and then um, space, which is much more abstract. And so that's actually quite interesting to think about. Just our linguistic usage might even mark out, is it possible, is it meaningful to talk about cyber place? Perhaps not. Does
2: this affect then, though, how we would discuss something like tradition within a, within a um, community, because it's like, Just as an example, I mean, if we, a Christian church, are going to use the Bible as our basis for our tradition, and yet that's exactly what we're doing. We're reaching back into time, reading things from people who are 5,000 years ago bringing their ideas forward and saying these ideas are a continuation of who we are now today. I mean, does that affect the community, or is that a different kind of thing? Because then those traditions go on, and can they exist? Can those kind of traditions then exist through modern technologies then, which, you know, are they going to continue? Are they going to be lost? Because there's no way to record them in the sense of, for example, if somebody doesn't have the ability to catch a podcast, or 2,000 years from now they can't do this, this is gone. Whereas those words still exist, so I don't know whether or not you can connect community through the history by having that shared. I mean, that's kind of what the Jewish people did. It was like they connected; they they kept their community going through all those hundreds and thousands of years by the fact that they had these oral traditions, which they wrote down, which was a kind of a technology.
0: Yeah, and that's what that's what the the shared history one's about is that somehow. So if if to I think. I kind of made this more of a debate than I should have. (laughs) Uh, I I get stuck on that proximity one. So I'm glad that you brought it up. But um, when you're talking about shared history, it's if community is the common life that transcends the individual, Mm -hmm. shared history is how that also transcends your time and place. Um, But shared history is mostly Mm -hmm. about the people who are still alive. So um, the example I use with this is I only have a couple people in my life who knew me when I was born, like literally just a couple now. Um, when my, my spouse and I kind of went on our uh, adventures of moving around, one of the things once our first child was born that we lamented was that we want to have people who will know this person since they were born. Um, and so it became really important for us to embed ourselves within a particular place where that shared history could happen. But as far as tradition goes, like, yeah, there's there's shared history that is, you see people doing this all the time in the United States, like with the founding fathers and the constitution, we're trying to pull back to a memory that's still holding something together. Um, And that can be a way that people determine ethics is based on what has happened in the past, you know, the use of tradition in that way. Um, But, beyond the proximity debate <laughs> uh, which which honestly it should continue and to play my hand I'm I'm of an agrarian mindset and mm-hmm. so the 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 proximity of a space of a place is important to me um the the other one that is equally as important and almost not done at all in our culture is permanence and to have a a sense of I'm committed to this continuing uh, indefinitely, and to hark back to the old uh, the the hippie metaphor we were using, what's the problem that has has succumbed almost every commune concept? It doesn't last very long mm-hmm. because the ideal, when moved into practice, uh, it gets dicey quick, and individuals remove themselves. And so, permanence permanence is almost this promise that you're making to go. Yeah, when all of that happens, because it's going to, I'm going to stay here. Uh, And we don't do that with community. Mm -hmm. We barely do it with marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's interesting is our culture has a legal contract that you sign for marriage. So you are legally obligated. If you get married, you're legally obligated to one person. And those even break down. We have nothing like a communal contract, mm-hmm. and we wouldn't do it mm-hmm. because it's it's too uh, obstinate from us, right? Um, but that that is the that is the thing that breaks down community from my uh, perspective, my experience the most is uh, that commitment's not going to transcend the circumstances. Mm-hmm. So when the circumstances get messy, we leave. Um, shared vision, shared values is the one that I think is best enacted in our culture. Mm -hmm. And with transience, with technology, that is something we can get. Uh, We go to a place and we can find the people who think like us, who share our vision, and we connect with them. The trick is, what if those shared values break down? Uh, What if things do get messy? Do you have anything that transcends the affinity that you have? Um, And this is where I think the family system can be a good way to understand Um, community in some ways. Uh, And now we're starting to move to like how we enact it. Mm -hmm. The family system is a good example um, of how a a marriage partnership works, but then also how the household itself works. That's almost a microcosm of community. Um, And so we might be able to go like, all right, so instead of just thinking like globally about how community works, let's just think about like how a family system would work. And then try to see if we can pull out some of the the postures necessary for community uh, community to happen within a group that's not family. Um, and that's where proximity, shared history, permanence, shared shared vision or shared values that that works really well there. Um, I think churches have to think about this same thing. Um, organizations have to. And this is where this starts getting really messy. As soon as you have an organization where you're exchanging labor for a wage, how exactly are you committed to that? Uh, Where does that lie? So you can look at all these different forms of community in our culture and kind of, if you're using these four ingredients, you can look at them, analyze them and go, and where did it break down, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And as far as I know, there's, uh, there's very few organic communities that, stuck around very long. To also play my hand, I also, when I talk about churches, um, particularly rural churches, I'll use these four ingredients to go, the church has one of the best propensities to make this happen, and is one of the longest standing communities mm-hmm. that are still around today. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting to think about all that.
1: Yeah, so th- I mean, a couple things came to mind. I mean, I, I the overarching comment I have um, is just about, and returning again to our hippies, like the critique of of the romantic vision of community. We can acknowledge that there's something there. There's something of value there, but it seems to me, sort of following in what you said, that one of the most important elements, maybe, to mark out for a successful community is to plan for conflict. To say, instead of yeah. beginning at the place where community is this utopic situation, that it's almost like marriage that sets you yeah. up for failure.
0: If two people get married because of their positive experience up until that point, <laughs> as soon as that is gone and this is what people mean like when the honeymoon's over you know when the fire dwindles that's we don't have to make it that metaphoric it's Mm -hmm. when conflict happens right so if you if and i officiate a lot of weddings and this comes up all the time all right so you when i'm talking with a couple and it's like oh everything's been great i'm like oh shit (laughs) (laughs) so what are you going to do when it's not because it's coming right Uh, And that is, that is the huge thing. If we're only basing like, ah, look at this great group of friends I have and everything's been so perfect now for, you know, six hours. Okay. Well, what's going to happen after that?
3: Mm -hmm.
0: So preparing for conflict, you will never avoid it. And part of the marriage or like premarital or marriage counseling that will happen often um, is to go, you're never going to avoid conflict. So what's your plan? Mm-hmm. How are you prepared for it? Mm-hmm. And if you can get people to actually sit down and go like, oh, we should we should develop these uh, habits of communication. Mm-hmm. We should develop these postures of conflict resolution. Uh, okay, now you can get through the conflict as opposed to allowing it to end something. And we just don't do a good job of yeah. that. And again, family system now translates out. Mm-hmm. Is that also necessary?
1: Yeah, no, and and I do think that there's a... that that parallel between uh, family, or as you said, oikos, like the economy of the interior, and uh, echoing the economies of of communities is really helpful. And that building, what we don't really have is a robust cultural um, description of conflict as a necessary pillar. So we were we were fighting over a little bit proxima or proximity as one of the necessary components of a community. We but I almost think, well let's embrace the let's embrace the conflict. conflict. But um but you know, I do want to return, even though I was, I was playing devil's advocate a little bit because I'm also very suspicious of community. Beyond place for me, place is, and I mean physical, like land-based place. I, I think we've also all seen, although I don't have in my head the, the the magical number, but that most well-functioning communities are capped at what 150 people before things start going off the rails. It becomes harder to have a well-working um, economy of that place. So, it may be the proxima or place is really an important ingredient. But I just wanted to say, I think conflict resolution is the one like, that's the missing element culturally um, that would be important to, to, <clears throat> to include. Well, maybe that's where the tradition
2: comes in, then, is like you can look back onto those texts or those like that, you know, like we have a constitution or we have a Bible or something that we all agree this is the basis that we're going to use. Mm. And then look at how those people resolved conflict and did they do it well or did they do a bad job, you know, and then how can we do that better and how can we use that as a basis then to be able to be something that we can use to kind of resolve those conflicts with ourselves.
0: Yeah, and that starts getting into ethics and how are we determining Mm -hmm. what's right and what's wrong and how things should work, which is, I think, where the conversation needs to go. Now, for those of you uh, going like, yeah, conflict and conflict resolution, good news, I have four episodes on this i think it's like (laughs) episodes 11 12 13 14 or something like that uh conflicts are like a huge part of my perspective uh, of the world and conflict resolution is actually something i was trained in so i uh, i give you all the conflict resolution theory and practices and um that should be used for your interpersonal relationships but absolutely translates into community too um and there's all these questions here, right? Like, how big can a community be? And, and I've heard varying numbers from 150 to 200, but it usually doesn't go bigger than that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that's based on, uh, you know, think back to Yuri Brofenbrenner, the, the different systems. Eventually, once you get past 200, you're now talking about a public. And psychologically, are our brains able to have that common life mm-hmm. with more than 200 people? Uh, or whatever you want to determine that number is, but um, like how do we determine whether it's community or whether it's just acquaintances? Uh, does it have to be secluded to geographical proximity?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that a part of it or not? These, these are all questions that you have to to, to ask and I, and I think it's going to return to there's no single answer here. We just need to keep mm-hmm. discovering uh, on, on what works. Um, and then you have the identity question. Right? Like how much should ideology play? Can community only exist if everybody agrees on everything all the time? Well, that's never gonna happen. Mm-hmm. So is community just out of the question now? Um, or are, is there ways to balance the, the differing perspectives, which are a result of phenomenology uh, within all of this process? Oh, look at this plug good news Mm -hmm. there spent a few episodes on that as well (laughs) there's this whole concept called map making Mm -hmm. which is basically saying you're never going to agree on everything so what do we do
3: Mm
0: -hmm. um but the the phrase so if you remember um there was an episode on ecology where i i said a philosopher friend of mine uses this phrase the messy middle uh so that was ashley and uh that same phrase is necessary here Mm. Wherever, however you want to answer those questions, there's still this messiness that we have to figure out. Um, and so if if all's, I think all we did there was, hey, what is community? You can never really know for sure, uh, which is probably good philosophy, I guess. But uh, I think we got, came to something there. Okay, common life that transcends the individual, how that life is ordered amongst a group of people. There's those four ingredients, there's collective. All right, we got something. But what's the healthy way to enact mm-hmm. that? What does healthy community look like? And particularly, what do we do with this problem of conflict? So let's stop there for today. We've, we've started the conversation on what community is. And we've looked at a whole bunch of perspectives here. We've left out a bunch of perspectives. You know, every philosopher has probably said something about this. And, you know, Ashley's probably jumping at the possible conversations to be had. But then you got sociology. We didn't even get into anthropology, you know, what's community like in nomadic cultures and then at the at the start of the agricultural revolution and there's history you know we're not the ter- first people to try to solve this or try to enact it but we kind of came to all right, common life you're an individual person your own phenomenological perspective and then you you're in society and there is this relationship between the eye and the you with all these complex relational layers that naturally connect us and and the big things we're taking away anything here it's this involves your proximity your presence you know you still got to determine what that is and it involves your your history and memory that's shared between those people with a future commitment of permanence Between those people, that's going to allow this to continue to endure within the mess. And you've got that shared vision piece, the ideological piece, the identity, the values, the process. And despite our immense differences as individual human beings, we have to figure out how to hold that. And so, all of you and all of them are held in common, and it's done indefinitely that all sounds great but now we actually have to pull it off and that's what we're going to look at next time and we're still going to find that it's mostly good ideas and it's much harder to actually practice this thanks for joining us everyone you can find more of becoming human at tylerkleberger.com and of course if you're open and willing to supporting the show can do that on coffee Ko-fi.
3: that's ko-fi.com becoming human